Welcome back to another episode of the Making of the SRE Omelette podcast, where we talk about how to achieve business and client success outcome via site reliability engineering. I'm your host, Kevin Yu, and I'm the principal SRE at IBM Sustainability Software. Many guests on the show have mentioned people is a key ingredient to a good SRE omelet. In today's episode, we will be speaking with not just one, but three members of a site reliability engineering team. Listen in as they share their journey to their roles today, what they enjoy the most, and also what they would prefer to do less of. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Ashley, Ape, and Andrew. I just realized this, but it was not my intention to have all your names starting with A for the show. But welcome to the show. I guess we'll call you the A-Team. I'm so excited for the guests to hear your stories. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. Why don't we start out with a quick intro? Can each of you share the role you're in and for how long? Can you get us started, Ashley? Sure. I'm a DevOps developer on the SRE automation team within sustainability software at IBM. We focus on automating high-toil, tedious processes for internal teams that develop and support the Maximo SaaS, Trirega SaaS, MazMS, and TazMS offerings. I've been in this role for almost four years now. In other words, you're the team that help us conquer toil and give the life back to the rest of us. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ashley. How about you, Andrew? So I am the team lead for the CBS monitoring and performance team on the software sustainability division, mainly focusing on the Maximo and Trariga Flex products. I've been in this position for about a year and a half now and on the team for six in total. Time flies, right? <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. And you, Ape? Yeah, so I'm working as a senior data scientist at uh, the sustainability software group here in Dublin Software Labs. Our focus is currently on making the infrastructure allocation more sustainable without compromising on the reliability part of it. I can say I've been working on in this team for around two years now. Overall in this stream since 2017, exciting times ahead. Chiefs. With the focus on SRE and data science, definitely the right place to be. Let's keep it going. So thank you all for the quick intro. I've always been curious of how people's paths that led to where they are today. Can you please also share with the audience how you arrive at the role you are in today? Andrew, can you share your journey with us first? So I arrived in this role almost out of necessity. Uh, I started off doing performance testing for the Maximo product releases for a lot of the on-prem customers. And uh, we were getting involved in more and more customer performance incidents. During those RCA investigations, we realized we didn't really have enough metrics to be able to accurately reflect the system's health and performance. So it kind of left us in the dark a little bit when we were trying to do our investigations. So we implemented our, our monitoring suite that we use today, and it kind of the rest is history. <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> yeah, dark times. Necessity is also an opportunity. I'm so glad you landed here. How about you, Ape? I would say I had two main reasons to start my career or to switch my career as a data scientist. Before I became a data scientist, I was working as a database architect. Till 2014, I spent many years in doing different database, relation database activities in length and breadth. So I had a kind of feeling by 2014 or so that, you know, this field is getting saturated slowly. 
with more and more automation, lowering cost hardware. And people were adopting the cloud very, very rapidly. And second thing was, by nature, I was always very keen and interested in predicting or forecasting things using data. It has always been so, even when I was not a data scientist. By 2014, when I saw that IBM is really focusing more on blockchain and data science, I thought this is the moment. You know, sometimes you have to forecast five years ahead in your career. And I thought this is the moment. I think this is what exactly I was looking for. And then that's where I started learning ropes on data science on my own. And as Andrew said, rest is history. <laughs> five minutes in, and we already have quotes for Andrew. Thanks for sharing, Apey. Two things. One, I never knew you were a database architect. I think that explains your proficiency at analyzing database utilization. And two, you switching the job is a perfect example of keeping an eye on where the company and the industry is going and staying true to your passion and look for an opportunity to pivot. Well done. And Ashley, how about you? So kind of taking it way back, I actually started out by studying mechanical engineering at North Carolina State University. So our curriculum included a couple of programming and robotics courses, which is what really piqued my interest in software development. I started teaching myself how to program with different languages, such as Python and JavaScript in my free time and began looking for internships that focused on software development so I could get more experience in the field. I was able to get an internship at IBM on the Watson IoT blockchain team, which allowed me to work part-time during the school year and full-time over the summer. And once I graduated in 2019, I got a full-time position at IBM on the SRE automation team and have worked my way up to the role that I'm in now. That's interesting. Robotic definitely has a connection with automation. And actually, you also demonstrated how one can take action to steer into a profession one enjoys by learning and gaining experiences. Fantastic as well. So thank you so much for sharing your journey that led you here. Let's get into what you do today. Can you start by sharing with the audience what is one thing you enjoy the most about your job? Why don't you take us through it first, Apey? Yeah, sure. Those who know me outside of work, and if you talk to my wife, she will say that, you know, this guy has two wives. <laughs> and data science and his work is his first wife. She always makes fun of me about this. So, and, and that's true because I'm really crazy about the work I do, right? It always keeps me happy, even if I have to work sometimes at a time when, you know, everyone is sleeping. I'm able to scratch that itch when I work on these kind of solutions. Now, the thing that really excites me the most about this work is that there are endless possibilities, Kevin. It makes you feel so astonished when you can predict something which is about to happen mm -hmm. a week or 15 days in advance. <laughs> it makes you feel so amazing when you forecast something and it is about 90% accurate as compared to the reality, which has already happened in the past. Better than the weather forecast. Better than the weather forecast. And that really excites me. That gives me motivation that, you know, you're going in the right direction and perhaps you can do a bit more next time. So it's the unseen things that you can see through your solution. That thing, those hidden possibilities that you're trying to unearth, that is something that keeps me moving every day. Well, okay. I feel excited after hearing that. And you may have just inspired some audiences to be a data scientist. How about you, Ashley? 
So I've always enjoyed problem solving and building things, which is why I originally wanted to be an engineer. Mechanical engineering gave me that opportunity, but as I quickly found out, software development took it to a whole nother level. As a DevOps developer with a focus in SRE and automation, I'm solving problems every day and building solutions that help people. Our SVP, Karen Yosef, said, the key ingredient for SRE is people. And the key to good people is giving them meaningful work with enduring value. There is nothing more meaningful than helping people. And automation is about creating that enduring value by eliminating toil. Actually, I think he'll be so excited to hear what you just described. Up to you, Andrew. Yeah, so I really enjoy being able to follow the entire engineering process, identifying the gap, the requirement citation, figuring out what do we need, what are we missing in our monitoring, um, and being able to, to see that through to the end product where we release a new monitoring tool or sort of combine with some sort of automation. And then we can save time in operations management. We can prevent future alerts, anything that's uh, customer impacting, being able to improve our performance. So just being able to see that time savings and to see that fruits of our labor, so to speak, it's really gratifying. And it's one of the things that you know, I enjoy the most. I was reflecting as the three of you share what you enjoy. They are very much connected, right? For example, through working to resolve production issues, Andrew would surface gaps in our visibility today. He would then instrument the code, so we start to see those metric and data. Apple would then say, hey, let me not only tell you what the historical trend has been, but also how I can predict what's going to happen so we can stay proactive to minimize disruptions. Actually, we then automate that action so we don't have to rely on human to act, but machine for us to truly scale this out to more customers. Do you see that happening today as well? Yeah, that's how the things eventually turn around, Kevin. Like it, it starts from the idea, you, you convert the idea into a kind of solution. Then you need some kind of automation around it. Then you need some infrastructure. So I see these three areas can and should always work hand in hand when you want to deliver a project based on SRE. Right. Now, memory is coming back to me. I believe, Andrew, you and Ashley's teams actually worked together to solve a problem last year that got pretty hot. Without giving names, can you take the audience through that? Yeah, of course. Um, so sometime last year, we had uh, customer escalation make its way up through management and, you know, ring some fire alarms. Uh, so we got pulled into that and tried to, to figure out what's going on, what's the cause of this issue. And we kind of came to the conclusion that digging through the logs, looking at the metrics that were, we did have, that there was gaps there, right? We were not alerting on specific, I think in this case, it was the database transaction log. Um, so it's just one thing where if it gets full, then you're pretty much shut down, right? There, there's nothing else that's going to be operational. So we had to create that path, create some new monitoring for it, create the new automation to take action and alerting before that happened. So it was one thing that we could deliver for the customer, I think um, was definitely made an impact for them. So Andrew did a great job explaining how data observability and automation all go hand in hand. At his end, he was made aware of an issue with the database transactions and the fact that, you know, clients have a need to know when they may see issues down the road, when this reaches that 50% threshold. And from there, they had to reach out to the automation team to figure out how do we automate this? How do we let clients know when we reach that threshold automatically? So we don't need a person to go in and send that directly to the clients. 
My team was able to leverage the Client Communication Center, which is the main communication dashboard that we use to communicate with clients. So from there, we were able to monitor the database transactions, determine when it hits that threshold, and automatically send out communications to our clients. At that point, clients are able to leverage another tool that the automation team created to allow clients the ability to remediate any issues on their end automatically. So they can schedule these tasks, run it, watch the processes, and see when they've completed successfully. Now that's teamwork. I remember because of this fantastic collaboration across the teams, we turned an unhappy customer to one that praised IBM team on a call when we showed them the findings, what we learned, and the actions we took to make it better. And for the context of the audience that may be wondering why would we want the customer to act in this case versus automatically recover, this was a unique hosted situation. However, I do think that in the longer term, I would love to see how we can allow customers to configure for IBM to automatically act on their behalf for even more hands-free operations. And that's really the spirit here, always learning and looking for ways to improve the user experience. So why don't we shift to a more difficult question? (laughs) Now you talk about what you enjoy doing. Can you also share with the audience what you don't like as much or what you would prefer to do less of? Andrew, you want to take this one first? Uh, Are we allowed to say meetings? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, especially meetings that end with no outcomes and actions. No, I'm just kidding. But for me, it'd probably be the individual like root cause investigations. If there's one thing not to dive into the logs, do heap dumps, analyze that and all the stack traces, it just seems very tedious and something that I know that can be automated and prevented from happening in the future. The time I spend focusing on a single customer takes away time that I have to develop tools that can reduce these incidents across all customers. I think that's one of the things that I, I try and focus my time on and be able to take what I learned from those individual investigations and be able to apply it. There's new monitoring that was missing, uh, something that we can deploy for all customers. It's something that I, I tend to focus on. That's a good one, Andrew. While incident learning is key to SRE practice, it can also be one of the most time-consuming things we do. There are definitely help on the way from tools such as AI ops to make it easier. And to your point, if tools can present to you the related data, it will allow you to arrive at the findings and insights sooner and be able to do the work to apply to a broader set of customers. How about you, Ashley? What would you like to do less of other than meetings? <laughs> yeah, so one thing I've always disliked is writing. I find it hard to put my thoughts onto paper since I'm usually thinking about a thousand things at once. Because of this, I wish I could spend a little less time writing user guides and technical documentation for the automated solutions that my team and I develop. That being said, I do find technical writing much more enjoyable than the alternatives, so I don't mind sticking with it. It also allows me to kind of see the solution from a client's point of view. And from that, I can see, okay, well, where can I approve this automation process to make it more efficient or better for the end user? That's a great point. Let me piggyback on taking the client perspective. I was just speaking with a technical writer the other day on the metric of the percentage of cases open that are asking us where it is, how to, or trying to. Now imagine if we can eliminate even a fraction of those cases, 
that would not only lead to reduced caseload for us, but more importantly, much better user experience, meaning customers can continue to do their business without having to wait for us to respond. Exactly. I've found over the past couple of years, specifically with our access management tool, that the better our documentation is and the better organized it is, the less of those tickets come in where the simple, how do I submit an access request? How do I obtain database access? Things like that. That's definitely work to have less of those. <laughs> Agreed. How about you, Ape? My answer would also fall in the same line as Andrew's and Ashley's. As data scientists, we always itch to make the models or do the statistical analysis and run multiple hypothesis tests on the data to validate our results right. But before even we can do that, we need to make sure that the data is good enough for that kind of analysis. And I've seen that no matter how many functions or solutions I create for one customer to slice or dice the data, so that it's ready for that kind of stage. I always end up changing or modifying those functions because every customer has different data sources, different kinds of text in the data, wherein one single solution for slicing and dicing, it wouldn't work. So as data scientists, I'm pretty sure every data scientist would give the same answer that we spend a lot of time on slicing and dicing and cleaning up the data before it becomes eligible to run through the pipeline for the modeling. And that's where I feel, I think, we, we spend quite a good amount of time at, which, which if we can reduce, would really help us a lot. And it, it really is a bit boring and repetitive as well. So that's one thing that I would really want to avoid. By the way, Andrew, we can create a solution to read your logs and, you know, get the summary out of it. Sounds great. Love it. Solution here on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And Ape, we definitely need to get better at giving data scientists like yourself clean and better data. I also think we need to shift the paradigm. And I'm starting to see that from giving data scientists the data after the fact to doing data science where the action is. Definitely another exciting area where there's a bright future to look forward to. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for sharing on the topic of things you would like to do less. Let's work together to have less of those. And I know I paid and Andrew, they got something going there. Now, we spoke a little of it already. Learning is a big part of the SRE culture. I'd like for us to touch on any aha moments you may have had in your career that has led you to change what you do. Any takers to get this conversation started? Okay, I can take the stab at it. I have a few that have happened between the last holiday season and today. One of the solutions that I'm working since quite some time now is to find anomalies or problems before even they happen. And then people have this notion that whether you forecast the infrastructure or whether you find the anomaly, we humans are far more smarter than the 2 MB of code, right? How can a 2 MB of code or 1,000 lines of code can beat a human in <laughs> forecasting infrastructure or finding an anomaly? So... I have had some examples where it, it actually did. One of the customers during the Christmas peak season was, I mean, it was really a very critical customer, right? And the problem was the customer started doing some kind of work that increased huge amount of API calls. They were not supposed to do that. And our anomaly detection solution caught it. But the customer care didn't catch it because it didn't breach their SLAs before they can start raising 
concerns. So everyone was okay. And there was an earthquake or a tsunami boiling down. So we told them that mm. things are going in the wrong direction. I can clearly see a break in the trend. And if you guys don't do anything, I can clearly predict that 30 days from now, it will cross a big threshold. And by the time it will be too late. So they started digging into it and they found the customer was doing something incorrect. So they taught the customer, they explained the customer that what's the right way of doing it. And as soon as the customer started doing that, it again came back to the same levels. In fact, slightly down, then lower than the, the, the previous levels. So we were able to avoid a, a big problem with the customer without the customer care being involved. It was just simply our anomaly detection solution that worked like a mm -hmm. job. You know, it's simple once you know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and we have had same kind of instances in other customers as well, where we could find the anomaly or the problems three or four days ahead. And people were just amazed to, to see that. Wow. You know, I've heard in my experience, there's nothing easier than success to reinforce it's a good thing to do. And once you can demonstrate success, more and more people is going to jump on board and help you get there. Sure. Love that story, Ape. Actually, Andrew, do you have a aha moment you want to share as well? So one of the things that I've noticed is that the, the Maximum Intrigue offerings are so unique in the way that customers use the applications. There's no you know, one solution for everybody. There's no one size mm -hmm. fits all in terms of sizing their environments. Generally, we had best practices that are, let's say, the users per GVM and six gigabytes a heap, this kind of garbage collection, right? The, these database configurations. They don't apply to the same for every user and for every client. Mm -hmm. right? Some may have more users using the UI application. Some do it all through NIF integrations. So being able to kind of differentiate that and determine this is the usage that this customer is having. This is the requirements that solution that will work best for them. I think that's one of the things that we're really focusing on working with Abe's team is kind of determining based on this many web requests and this database usage, this transaction throughput, figuring out what it means to, to size an environment properly and to mm -hmm. maximize our efficiency in that resources. Because right. that leads to cost savings, it leads to better customer satisfaction on their, their systems, right? They're not undersized, they're not oversized. I think that's one of the things that have been the biggest change in the way that I've uh, approached monitoring and the, the observability on our team. That is a great capture, Andrew. In a way, it also captured the maturity of the team over time. From my experience, starting out, if you don't have the data, you don't have an update to <laughs> see the future. So in lack of that forecast, the safest way to avoid the problem is to over-provision. Double resources, add more cores, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. While you may mitigate the risk, it leads to higher costs, as you mentioned, and also more carbon which is not good when you put on the lens of sustainability. I'm really glad to see the team has embraced data to rise as an environment and moving us forward. How about you, Ashley? Any aha moments you'd like to share with the audience? One of my most memorable aha moments occurred when I started working on the SRE automation team. One of the very first tasks that I was given was to take kind of our monolithic application of the self-service portal tool and break it down into microservices that we could deploy through Docker containers. Now, at this point, I was still pretty new to the programming world. 
And I thought I had to know everything coming into this. I was trying to teach myself on my own how to leverage the Docker container technology, how to separate this big monolithic application into bite-sized pieces that we could manage individually. And it took me kind of weeks just going through this and and a lot of frustration to the point where Mm -hmm. my manager at the time sat me down and just asked, hey, like, how's it going? You seem a little frustrated. Can I help? And at that point, I really needed the help and, and I was a little nervous to ask and, and I just let him know what was what was going on. And he brought it to my attention that, you know, asking for help is actually a skill. You yes. know, if you know kind of how to leverage it properly. I was actually listening to one of your um, podcast sessions earlier with <laughs> Bill Higgins yes. about this. And he was referencing the two ditches on the mm-hmm. road where on one side, yep. you ask too many questions, you ask for help too much. And, and on the other side, you don't ask enough. So for me, learning how to meet in that middle, try to get things done on my own at first. And if I have questions, reach out to people. IBM is a big community of incredibly gifted people. And we've all had our own experiences. And, and we all have something that we can give to help people. What a wonderful story, Ashley. You know, Bill will be so happy to hear what you took away from his episode. Asking for help is definitely an essential skill for everyone to have, no matter how senior. And I also have to thank your manager for reaching out to you and having that dialogue. Creating that safe environment for asking for help is essential to everyone's success. And you know, actually, your story took us to the next segment of this podcast on technical vitality. Perhaps two topics. One, your words of wisdom to someone who is motivated to go into the SRE profession on what they can do to get started. And two, any advice for someone who is already in the profession as well? Ashley, you are on the roll. Do you want to keep on going? So, you know, to start, SREs are responsible for the reliability of the complete software development lifecycle from the front-end customer-facing applications to the back-end database and hardware infrastructure. Because of this, I recommend people who are interested in becoming an SRE to start in some type of development role, whether that be front-end, back-end, full-stack, or even cloud computing. Having knowledge and experience in the processes that you're optimizing and the development of the services that you're making more reliable will make you a better SRE overall. And to add on to that, based on what I found helpful in my my previous responses, always reach out if you have a question. Kind of what I was explaining earlier, everyone has different experiences and, and everyone can teach you new lessons every day. And I find as an SRE, that's a big part of your role. You're problem solving, you're learning daily, and, and you're figuring out how to fix solutions or fix problems that may not have been resolved before. Great advice. Learn the art of asking for help and look to expand your knowledge of the system by learning from everyday problems you're solving. Andrew, any thoughts here? So yeah, it's going to be hard to follow up Ashley's answer, but I'll <laughs> Of course, yeah, I think that is definitely a, a great area to be in. Like, there's a, a lot of opportunities in this area and it's important to remember like, as we grow and scale as an organization, it's impossible to keep that linear progression of manual automation, right? It's like, we can't have mm-hmm. our IoT team, I know the immediate response team, 
continue to go in and manually resolve these alerts. It's a necessity that we continue to develop tools, automation, data science predictions, be able to follow that path and be able to grow as a company. So I definitely think it's a good area to be in. I would recommend it to anybody. If it's something that you're interested in, jump right into it. You can always uh, learn as you go, ask the right questions, take the right path that's right for you. Definitely great potential. Perhaps a call to action or challenge here is we almost have a self-driving car. I know that's debatable. So why don't we yet have self-operating services yet? And as you called out, Andrew, SRE is essential for that journey. How about you, Ape? I agree with what Andrew has explained so far. I feel that the SRE field in itself is a great area to be in. You guys will be busy in tackling tons of challenges around server reliability, so on and so forth. So I feel that there is a great scope for automation and data science that is there to solve those challenges. And that really excites me. Now, as far as having some kind of experience or some kind of prior background for this area is concerned, I would say, if I talk about myself, I feel that I can do more justice to the SRE kind of field or, or projects related to SRE because I had a bit of background in performance tuning. I had a bit of background in writing code in Python. I had a bit of experience in operating systems. So I feel that if we already have that experience and we come into the SRE domain with that experience, that will make us more successful and we will be able to contribute more in the SRE domain. That's what Ashley was saying as well. That is a very important co-op because with diversity of experiences, each individual can bring a different perspective, ask a different question that lead to us challenging the status quo and build a better solution system for our customers. Exactly, because it makes me understand an SRE problem better if I've worked on different types of problems related to that field in the past. So now we get to the signature question of this podcast. What is your ingredient and recipe for the SRE omelet? Perhaps we can do it a little different today since we have the three of you here. I see you three represent the three lakes of SRE stool <laughs> to keep on piling up analogy here on this podcast. Observability, data science, and automation. Do you want to each chip in your ingredient and recipe for the SRE omelet? Sure. So I think observability in the data is the foundation of SRE. If we don't have the data, if we don't have the metrics, then we can't do anything with it. We can't apply any data science. We can't apply any automation. We don't know what we don't know. So I think it's, it's definitely crucial to be able to detect and diagnose these issues as they happen. It helps us identify these things before they cause customer impacting outages, performance degradations. And I think it's really important to have a deep understanding of both the, the system and the operating environment. So the, the different aspects of the application across all platforms. So it's, it's like the foundation, as I said earlier, the one leg at the stool. <laughs> Definitely. AI eats data for breakfast. Yeah. Without it, you cannot service any insights, which brings us to Apey. I would say once Andrew has put his ingredient into it, I would add my two teaspoons of AI enamel based solution <laughs> on top of it because my AI enamel teaspoons are of no use if I don't have the data. So I would let Andrew to put his ingredient first and I'll top it up with my solution based on AI and enamel. That proves to everyone in the industry that with the right data, 
NPI ML solution on top of it, we can try and create some kind of solutions which are more proactive in the field of SRE. So that's my ingredient or, or the second leg of this tool. I love it. Two tablespoons of machine learning and AI. Ashley, do you have some salt pepper to dash on it? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. My additional salt and pepper would be automation. In short, the goal of an SRE is to push development forward to improve systems quickly while ensuring high quality, reliable, and flexible production environments and applications. In order to bring together reliability and speed, we must eliminate as much manual work as possible so that we can focus on innovation and engineering. And this is where automation comes in. Now, automation is just a force multiplier, not a standalone solution. Hence why it's only one ingredient in the SRE omelet, or as you put it, Kevin, one leg of the three-legged stool. (laughs) So we must leverage observability and data science to determine where to implement automation and why. That is one successful omelet. There you go, ladies and gentlemen, the three-legged stool of SRE from Andrew, Apey, and Ashley. Thank you so much for spending the time with us and share your incredible stories. You're welcome, Kevin. It was nice to talk to everyone. Thank you for having me. Definitely hungry now after that omelet. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Thank you, everyone. And I'd like to thank you, the audience, for listening. This is Kevin Yu, Principal SRE of IBM Sustainability Software. See you on future episode. Thank you.